2: Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. I'm John Lovett. Here on the Thursday pod, mixing it up a little bit. It's Jets and Splintstones. That's right, it's Jets and Splintstones. Very uh, later pop in the pop culture p- reference. <laughs> <laughs> Young hip vibe here at Crooked Media. Alright, later in the pod you'll hear Dan's interview with one of our very favorite people in all of politics, Stacey Abrams. Uh, But first, we're going to talk about Donald Trump going full Nixon by obstructing Congress's obstruction investigation, the New York Times story about how the president scammed the tax system while his business has lost more than a billion dollars, and all the latest 2020 news. Uh, New episode of Pod Save the World dropped on Wednesday. Tommy and Ben talked about our challenges with Iran, escalations in Gaza and Venezuela, the new royal baby, and why Ben will be living down a very particular interaction he once had with the Queen of England for the rest of his life. That episode description took a real twist when it got to... The reaction to the royal baby. <laughs> <laughs> How about Ben and the Queen of England? I feel like I feel like I know all of his Queen of England story, so I'm interested to hear this one. Also, tomorrow, Friday, uh, we will be going live on YouTube to take some of your questions, but this time we have a very special guest that will be doing it with us, Senator Brian Schatz. Um, so check it out. Go to YouTube.com/slash/CrookedMedia, and it will be at 10 a.m. Pacific, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. And it'll be uh, me and John and Tommy and uh, and Brian Shots taking your questions. Shots, 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 there you shots. Go. shots, just like the song. Finally, we are on the road next week in New York and Washington D.C. We have a show Thursday night in Brooklyn, Sunday night in D.C. Uh, the Keep It Crew will be in Los Angeles at the Regent Theater on May 14th. Pod Save the People just announced shows in Chicago and Minneapolis in June. For more details and tickets for all of our shows, head to Crooked.com slash events. All right, let's get to the news. Donald Trump's attempt to cover up his various crimes and abuses of power have plunged the country into what House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler and now Speaker Nancy Pelosi have called a constitutional crisis. After promising that his administration will defy all congressional subpoenas for testimony and documents related to any scandal or investigation, Trump asserted executive privilege for the first time in his presidency on Wednesday to block the full release of the same Mueller report that he's claimed totally exonerates him. Hours later, the Judiciary Committee voted to hold Attorney General William Barr in contempt of Congress. Dan, let's start with the claim of executive privilege. What is executive privilege and what is Trump's explanation for asserting it?
1: Well, executive privilege is traditionally a... Right of a president to protect certain set of documents from Congress, and that can include – it often includes um, presidential correspondence, their own letters. It includes uh, deliberations with their aides. And the idea being that president – which is a good one, actually, is that president should be able to – have confidence that their discussions with their aides, as they make as they work through decisions, are confidential. So anything that involves a decision making process is usually subject to executive privilege, and therefore Congress does not have a right to that. That is not what Trump is doing here. This is something very different. He is uh, asking for a blanket set of executive privilege over a wide array of things that. Uh, do not fall anywhere within a hundred miles of the traditional set of documents that the courts have upheld as as worthy of executive privilege.
2: Uh love it. is it odd for Trump to claim executive privilege on a report that he claims exonerated him?
1: Well, it's
3: <laughs> it's odd, obviously, right. He's hiding something that he's is supposedly good for him. Obviously that's not true. It's also hard to justify claiming executive privilege, which is, you know inherently about the president's own deliberations, about a report. That investigated him right it's about something that they that was happening to the president it's not yeah. something he did so it doesn't really make sense um, I also I will say though I am a little I'm a little frustrated by like I so Nancy Pelosi just agreed that Gerald with with Jerry Nadler's claim that this is a constitutional crisis yeah and I find it a little it's a It's like things are very bad but how we describe them does matter. And it is, to me, a little bit premature to call this a constitutional crisis, as if there's no constitutional remedy when we know some of the remedies that could come in forms, you know, there's contempt, there's uh, uh, contempt then can play out in the courts, it can play out in the Department of Justice, it can play out through the Sergeant at Arms, what have you. But I find it a bit strange to, as you're taking the first step toward discovering as to whether or not the Trump administration is going to comply with the law and comply with maybe future judicial requirements
2: to call it a constitutional crisis, like right out the bat. Dan, what do you think about this? Because I took constitutional crisis to mean that there's quite literally um, a crisis in like the executive branch is basically telling the legislative branch we're not going to comply with any oversight, even though the constitution says that the Congress has power of oversight. And so when the executive branch and the congressional and the legislative branch are just not in agreement and not willing to abide by, you know, if the executive branch isn't willing to abide by the Constitution, then what do we do? I think that's right. I mean, it is this is
1: different than any other situation in the sense that Trump has said explicitly that he will not cooperate with any oversight. He is basically saying I do not feel an obligation to be checked or balanced. And even on basic things involving the testimony of a Senate confirmed cabinet officer in uh, William Barr is up for, is something that he will not allow. The idea that he might prevent Bob Mueller from testifying. So that, you know, whether you want to use the term that we are currently in the crisis or we're barreling towards the crisis, we are in a very precarious position right now because how this plays itself out, both in terms of how Trump reacts, how Congress reacts, and how the courts, which are now stacked with political hacks, uh, reacts will define the congressional presidential relationship for decades going forward. And so whatever terminology you want to use, I think there is cause for uh, significant concern.
2: And I think no president in history has ever sort of defied all oversight completely. like that. That's unprecedented as well. I know people are using the word unprecedented quite a bit over the last couple of days and throughout this presidency. Um, but it does seem like, I mean, we should add that one of the articles of impeachment uh, against Richard Nixon was Nixon obstructing Congress, um, much like Trump is doing. But it seems like even Nixon didn't have sort of a blanket refusal to cooperate with any congressional oversight whatsoever, right?
1: Yeah, no, he provided – there were witnesses and documents, and the initial the, – the huge court battle around executive privilege was, was Nixon's attempts to keep the tapes from the taping system in the White House from Congress. And what the Supreme Court ruled was executive privilege cannot be used to prevent Congress from having access to potentially criminal conduct. You can't, you can't hide evidence through executive privilege, and there is some evidence, if you will, that that is what is happening here.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. It really is. You know, Nancy Pelosi said this this thing about Donald Trump self impeaching, which is hilarious. But uh, uh, it really does. I, I don't get. Th- I don't get it. Still, I, I think it means that he <laughs> I is, read it from a couple different times. I know. I, I I was thinking about it, and I really think it, what she means is he is. He is, he is making, he is putting himself in a position, he is taking steps to make it impossible not to impeach him,
2: that he is basically goading, impeaching I, himself. I, I, saw, I saw her earlier say she's, he's goading us into impeaching him.
3: Yeah, I think that, I'm right, I think it's both, right, he's goading, He's go he, I, whatever whatever that means, whether he's doing it because he thinks impeachment's good for him or because he simply enjoys flouting the law, he is pushing Congress to impeach him in one way or another. But uh, uh, it is interesting how impeachment would play into this, because it does seem as though one of the that that being in the midst of an impeachment proceeding will make Congress's hands stronger in trying to get these documents, because it's no longer just about proving that Congress has the right to do oversight or some legislative purpose, but actually uh, needs to investigate the conduct of the president, which is
2: unassailably Congress's say, like, solemn responsibility. Yeah, because we should say that. You know, one avenue here for the Democrats is to throw it to the third branch of government, the judiciary, and say, "Okay, you settle who's right, the executive or the legislative branch here. The problem with that is, and what the Trump administration knows full well, is that some of these cases individually, because there's so many different investigations and so many uh, different administration officials defying subpoenas, (laughs) that um, this could just wind up in the courts and it could take quite a while. In fact, it could take beyond twenty twenty or even beyond Trump's you know, beyond Trump's term in office. Right. Um, for the for the courts to settle this. And I think what you just said, love it, is in the case of impeachment, if they start an impeachment proceeding um and they try to defy subpoenas, I guess it would get decided much quicker because they're opening an impeachment proceeding. This is into you know, this is a proceeding that's investigating the president's corrupt behavior and I guess that gives them a stronger hand. Is yeah. that what is that what you took from this too, Dan?
1: Yeah, I, I, but I, I think there is an element of running out the clock here that is very critical to the Trump strategy. For example, just yesterday, the courts finally settled a case involving a dispute over access to documents between the Obama administration and Republicans in Congress that began in 2012. So it was a seven-year yeah. process to work that <laughs> way through the courts. So we could be well into Don Jr.'s first term before we even resolve some of these issues
2: so let me ask is a protracted fight over um the Mueller investigation is that advantageous to trump like what if he just said you know uh let's just give them the unredacted report uh let's move on focus on you know other shit that trump wants to focus on uh you know uh immigrants at the border (laughs) all his favorite hits so then he doesn't have to focus on this at all like what why is he um, engaging in this protracted fight over uh, oversight and accountability.
1: I, you know, it's well, some things are just instinctual for Trump, and Trump's instinct is to fight. He always wants to be fighting. He needs uh, enemies. He needs a grievance. It's how he gets out of bed in the morning. It's that, I think that's both like a personal psychological thing, but also a political strategy that he just he like like with all things with Trump, I think his strategies, even though they're effective sometimes, are instinctual not intellectual and he he just wants to be fighting democrats i also think he has a fear about the deeper people dig the more crimes they will find um but it's i think it's a little more uh on the surface than than there's this very specific thing he's trying to hide
3: yeah Uh, this is why the 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 calling it a constitutional crisis sort of bugged me and i i'm like having trouble articulating it but there is this feeling that what we're in is this very complicated process argument in which you have the White House. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders goes out there and says, Jerry, Jerry Nadler ridiculous. He's trying to issue a, a subpoena and hold uh, uh, the attorney general in contempt for not breaking the law. Right. Because they claim that that it would be breaking the law to turn over the grand jury testimony, then, then the Democrats go out there and say, this is unprecedented. The Republicans go out there and say, this is unprecedented. And as strong as we believe our argument is, and as unprecedented as Donald Trump's behavior is, we end up in a situation which, in which we are arguing in these stark and grand terms about fundamental questions about the Constitution while nothing's actually happening. And it just feels like a lot of noise where and I I guess I just wish that I understood better the strategy of Democrats to get something out of this argument.
2: Yeah, I mean, I look, I think that's I think one of the problems is this is why Democrats should have uh, taken it up to an 11 when the Mueller report was released. Yeah, because the problem with not saying Yes, these are impeachable offenses, and now we're going to hold investigations, but impeachment's absolutely on the table at the end of these investigations. And, and that could have been an easy message, even though that's not what they did. A lot of them said, well, impeachment's too good for him, and blah, 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 you know, all this other bullshit. The problem is, if you start with that message, and then you find yourself moving towards impeachment because the administration is basically saying fuck off to every single subpoena that they get— then you look like, then, then it starts looking like you said, which is this protracted battle over process. I mean, and I think the reason that you use the term constitutional crisis is they have to now convey the urgency of the situation um, because it is an urgent situation. Because like, why should an average person care about what's happening in Congress right now? Well, if you have a president and administration that's saying we can do whatever the fuck we want, we can abuse power in any way we want, have any kind of scandal we want. And no one's going to do anything to us because we're not going to comply with congressional oversight. And we don't think you're going to impeach us anyway because we have Senate Republicans who aren't going to uh, break from us. And by the way, we feel pretty good about our chances on the Supreme Court because we have a bunch of Republicans on there. So we can do whatever the fuck yeah. we want. Now. And
3: one of them's a goon who literally threatened Democrats during the hearings. Right. It, it does, yeah, it feels a little bit like there was a fire and it was burning and Democrats collectively made a decision to let it burn out. And now they're trying to start the fire again. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's frustrating.
1: I I think that's right, but I do believe we are in a constitutional crisis because th- I think this is different. Trump like previous presidents have had with the possible exception of Nixon, but this is worse than Nixon in some ways. But previous presidents have tried to push the envelopes within the confines of the constitutional system. Trump is saying the constitutional system does not apply to him because he doesn't want it to. And like whether Democrats are handling that correctly or not or describing it correctly or having the Appropriate, proportionate actions to it is it you know is an open question and worthy of discussion. But where we are right now is basically Trump is like I said, Trump has decided that Congress has no role in providing accountability to him, and he will not agree to the strictures put forward by the Constitution. And now we're this will eventually go to a court that we know is stacked with Republican political operatives. And that, that sort of means the guardrails of government are off. I think the question for Democrats, to go to the, you know, Johnny, your original question, which is, is this fight good for Trump? Is it's The fight is only good for Trump if Democrats let it be, right? So we have to use this, like, this is what's happening. We have to use it in an argument that's not about process. It's not about subpoenas. It may not even be about the Constitution, but it is about people's lives. And I think that goes to that Trump is a chaos agent. But that chaos has consequences for all the things we are not doing that are affecting your lives.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. How, how does the um, contempt vote against Barr get Democrats closer to what they want? And what comes next there? They've held this guy. So the Judiciary Committee has voted to hold him in contempt of Congress. Obviously, it's got to go to uh, the full House for a vote. But let's say Democrats prevail and he's held in contempt of Congress. What happens next?
1: I mean, I don't know that it gets us any closer than we want. It's just we're basically going to make Bill Barr wear a... Uh, Scarlet C as he eats dinner at uh, Cafe Milano. I don't like I think it's an important like we have to set like you have there have to be some sort of consequences. And he will go down uh, in history as someone who was held in contempt, presuming Democrats go forward with this. But I don't think it gives us any more access to documents. It doesn't uh, change the dynamics of power. I mean, I'm for doing it, but we should be realistic about the effects of it. So but to D- Dan, to me, this is
2: Look, I, all I, roads lead to impeachment, people. I, this is the problem. It's like uh, you, can, you can hold them in contempt. You can then sue. You can go to court. You can do this. Every avenue has, there's something blocking it at the end. With the courts, it's time. They can run out the clock. With contempt votes, it's like no one's thrown Bill Barr in jail. It's like the only, it seems like the only, either the Democrats have two choices. One, forget about everything, don't conduct oversight, move on with their business and just decide that this is a lawless president who can do whatever the fuck that he wants or conduct impeachment proceedings. Because it doesn't seem like the middle of the road investigation strategy where they subpoena people and hold investigations on a whole bunch of different issues is going to work for them.
3: Right. But this is, this is why, Dan, like, you know, I agree with you, right? Donald Trump is refusing to comply with the basic tenets of oversight he is refusing to participate in the kind of basic rules of how our government's supposed to function but in some sense that is predicted right the assumption is that at some point there will be a president who refuses to who refuses to obey the constitution and to me right now we're in this nether space where uh, Donald Trump is refusing to comply. Democrats are kind of, I don't know, fe- in some senses going to to the going to where they need to go for subpoenas, holding people in contempt and other in others being a bit feckless saying, oh, you know, impeachment's too good for him. We're not sure what to do. To me, the threshold we haven't hit, in part because Democrats haven't pushed it there, is what happens when Donald Trump is either refusing to obey court orders, refusing to uh, uh, you know, if we get to the point where the sergeant at arms is involved, what have you. But we're not at the point right now okay, where Donald... what? <laughs> well, when the impeachment eagle has been let loose by the by the, the marshal by the Supreme Court Marshal. But, you know, look, these are we're, we're talking about like fundamental notions of power and where it flows from. And right at a, at a certain point, it is going to come down to whether or not Donald Trump refuses to obey the courts because he says, how can you enforce it? Or it comes it becomes Congress's responsibility to start using some of those inherent powers of Congress to enforce its subpoenas. To me, that is the kind of nightmare endgame that we're not at, at which point we truly would be in a genuine crisis in which the Constitution does not afford us the remedies we need to protect ourselves from Donald Trump.
1: I guess the open question would be whether uh, those remedies still exist.
2: Right. Yeah. What do we think that the Senate wants with Don Jr.? Don <laughs> Don Jr. In a been bipartisan, been bipartisan way. Bipartisan. Bipartisan. People are, uh, Republicans are not very happy with uh, Senator Richard Burr right now. Who is the uh, who was the chairman of the uh, Intel Committee in the Senate because he has signed on to the subpoena along with Mark Warner um, for Don Jr. And, uh, you know, Don Jr.'s attacking Burr. Like, Cornyn basically was saying, I don't know why this isn't case closed. I don't know why we're still doing this. So not, he's not even getting support from his Republican colleagues. Not in the John Senate. Cornyn. <laughs> Fucking Twitter troll. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. What, so, what do we think that the Senate wants with Don Junior Dan?
1: I mean, I presume it is about whether he lied to the Senate about the Trump Tower uh, deal, which has been, yeah, you know, something Adam Schiff has hinted about in, in the context of Trump Junior's testimony to the House Intel Committee. And I, th- if that is the case, that that does, I think, explain why Burr would do this because, you know, it gets buried down deep somewhere. There are still some you know, institutional prerogatives within the Senate that they frown on being lied to even by the president's son. Um, Now, the challenge of this is, is if they find that the person who will decide whether Donald Trump Jr. should be. uh, So the way this would play out is if the Senate were to believe that they would make a referral to uh, the Department of Justice about Trump lying and the person who would make the decision as to whether that was a chargeable offense would be none other than bill Barr.
3: Ugh.
2: telling you all roads
3: <laughs> there's got to be a road that goes somewhere else somewhere <laughs>
2: <Just>. <laughs> i mean i guess impeachment or beating him in 2020 seem like the two the two roads oh, here no, and, that, and and maybe both that you know. road's got
3: a lot of uh, there's a there's <laughs> some we'll talk about that. there's some predators on that road too <laughs>
2: Um, I should say that we also still don't know whether Democrats are going to be able to successfully compel testimony from Robert Mueller himself. Um, Nadler said this week in an interview that Trump's use of executive privilege could delay Mueller's appearance for weeks uh, because he's still technically an employee of the Justice Department. Uh, And, of course, you know, Trump no longer wants Mueller to testify. He flip flopped on that one. Originally, he said he didn't care. Now he doesn't want it to happen. Um, They're trying to get Mueller to testify on May 15th. Uh, can Trump and the Republicans stop Mueller from testifying, Dan? And and what should we expect from a Mueller hearing? Any bombshells or should we keep our expectations in check?
1: Never allow yourself to have hope. Um, the, <laughs> I love, be, before I... Dan Pfeiffer,
2: uh, Barack Obama staffer, 2000 and, 2007
1: <laughs> on. I, I've been dark since the Yes We Can days. Um, I think I want to make one point about Trump's... Uh, executive privilege claim that I think is important as it relates to Mueller himself, which is Mm -hmm. Trump, the claim that Trump filed is what is called a protective claim, not a conclusive claim, which means what they're saying is he may claim executive privilege on either all of or portions of the Mueller report, but they haven't gone through it to do that yet. So this is actually a very clever delaying tactic, which means now, I think there's something like a million pieces of paper that make up all the underlying evidence appendance of that report. So what normally what happens is when you file an executive privilege claim, you're very specific about the documents you are not providing and why, right? And you say that's this is deliber- deliberative content uh, involving discussion between the president and their advisors or whatever the traditional uh, acceptable legal standards of um, executive privilege are. And so what you're, he's potentially doing here is say is – delaying Mueller for a very long time as, you know, one person in the White House counsel's office goes page by page through all one million documents. And there's a world in which the courts give them some leeway to come back and argue about a specific document as opposed to a you know, all of them. You know, just sort of the court saying you can you must release it right now. Now, can they stop Mueller? Only Bob Mueller will decide that. It's like if he decides he wants to testify, um are they is are, is he gonna be arrested on his way to the Senate? Right? Like there's they there's no real way to stop him if he really wants to do it. The problem is Bob Mueller is a institutionalist through and through and has been unwilling to date to do anything other than write sternly worded, mostly secret letters about his concerns about how things are going. So we'd put that on him.
3: Yeah. Oof. Dan, can I ask you something? There's this feeling to me right now that Democrats are there's you know they're screaming to the bloody rafters, but nothing's happening. Do you see there it almost feels as though what we need is something to get the ball rolling, something to get an avalanche started that's not just begging Trump officials to be decent. Do you see any way through hearings, through some through through congressional action to Use congressional power in a way that doesn't require Trump administration compliance to start getting attention on these hearings and on these issues in a way that would build a kind of drumbeat to create pressure on Trump officials to participate.
1: I think Trump officials are immune to political pressure, and Trump is immune to political pressure because he, they, everyone takes their cue from Trump, and that's everyone from Mitch McConnell to to Kevin McCarthy. and the – it's just the the most important factor in a Republican's mind as they think about their politics and you try to – is the Trump base, right? So you have to look at this in terms of what's their incentive structure. As long as the Trump base is behind Trump, there's no incentive for Republicans to do anything because they're much more afraid of being primaried or Trump endorsing their opponent. Like look at – you know, Mark Sanford and uh, the congressman from South Carolina who Trump endorsed his opponent, and he lost, although he did eventually win that seat. Um, you know, all the candidates, in, establishment candidates who bucked Trump and then he endorsed their opponent and lost. So, they like, I don't think there's anything that will come of a hearing that will either move Trump officials to act differently or, frankly, dramatically move public opinion on this matter. And I think that is one of the things that – the factors that – underlie nancy pelosi's reticence to aggressively go down this path
2: i I do think if muller testifies i don't think that muller is going to say anything all that different than what he put in the 400 page report that that he worked on for quite some time but i do think that from a political perspective and a moving public opinion perspective Having Mueller talk about what is already in the report, but saying it out loud and maybe answering questions about it, I think it it would at least put the spotlight on Trump's wrongdoing and the fact that Mueller clearly believes there's evidence that he committed obstruction of justice. And seeing that on your TV, I do think is a little different than reading it in a report. And we know that something like 97% of Americans haven't looked at the Mueller report at all, (laughs) of course. Um, So, you know. Do I think that's going to move public opinion a lot? Probably not, but that could be a little bit of the drumbeat that you're talking about. But Mueller's the only one I can see doing that, because like Dan said, I think all the rest of the officials are going to say, fuck off, I'm, I'm defying a subpoena. And their tactic, the reason we're not going to get to the constitutional crisis that you talked about, Lovett, which is, you know, what happens when Trump ignores a ruling from the courts, is because delay is the tactic here. They're thinking, well, you heard what Jan just said about the uh, Eric Holder case that started in 2012, and here we are in 2019, and it's just wrapping up. So the Trump administration thinking to themselves, we're not going to have to get to a point where Trump says, no, I defy a court order, because we can tie this up in the courts for years. Yeah, these court cases are like Avatar movies. <laughs>
1: specific reference.
4: As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan
1: they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made-In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm
4: Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made-In Cookware.
1: This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024... The title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix.
0: Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt, raise a glass, And there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at OCOcean.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How do you cope when there's something weighing on you or something you need to get off your chest? You know the best way to do it? Best way to cope is to talk about it. Not just cram it down. Not do what generations of New Englanders have done. Just stuff their feelings down. Maybe cover it with a coat of booze. No. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/psa. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p.com/psa. All
2: right, let's move on to the stuff that the president might be working really hard to cover up. Uh, the New York Times published a story on Tuesday about how Donald Trump's businesses lost more than a billion dollars between 1985 and the mid-90s. More money than nearly any other individual ta- American taxpayer. Um, this helped him pay no federal income taxes in eight of the ten years the reporter studied. The president defended himself on Twitter on Wednesday saying, quote, You always wanted to show losses for tax purposes. Almost all real estate developers did and often renegotiate with banks. It was sport. Uh Guys, any surprises in this story? I'm personally surprised
1: that the Chinese uh, intelligence agencies watch Al. They
2: <laughs> listen to Hillary Clinton. It happened.
1: Uh, what a dream. From Hillary
3: Clinton's lips to the Chinese ears. <laughs> yeah, usually she does that at private speeches. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, I, look, I don't mm-hmm. think anyone is surprised mm-hmm. to find out that Trump is a fraud. Um, the degree of that fraud where he is, uh, you know, love it. As you always say, we elect America elected its worst person. It turns out we also elected our worst business person since he lost more money than any other taxpayer in most years that were in the information provided to the Times.
2: Yeah. I mean, how how, if at all, should Democrats talk about Trump and his taxes and what's in this story? I mean, is it is it possible to undermine the image of Trump? as a successful businessman with the fact that he was actually America's least successful businessman. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, we, we, did, we have gotten a taste of how um, conservatives are going to respond to this um, from our pals at Fox and Friends, and I think, I think we do have a clip of that that we can play. If is- anything,
4: you read this and you're like, wow, it's pretty impressive, all the things that he's done in his life. It's but beyond what most of us could ever achieve.
0: I, I don't know that there's any suggestion that he broke the law. Yeah. I think the suggestion is simply that he used the tax laws to his benefit. As if if you buy something
1: and it doesn't pan out right away or ever, you're a loser. No, you take shots, you have an opportunity to do things. That's the way he lived. The reason why we all knew Donald Trump's name is for 30 years, that's what he did. He bought towers, hotels, golf courses. He did it in other countries. When What do people not understand about these a little bit different than most people?
2: <laughs> you know what? In full agreement that he is a little bit different than most people. People. Yeah, uh, you're definitely <laughs> different.
3: It's, uh, you know, I, again, like this, uh, <laughs> this reminds me of the Mueller letter saying how mad he is at bar. It does feel like a deleted scene from an old episode. Like, y- OK, great. I, I do believe a lot of people decided to just sort of say fuck it and vote Donald Trump because they believed this reputation that he was a businessman. I think now he's been president for three years. We get to judge him on his actual conduct in the actual job which matters so much more than what his reputation was. Um, so I'm not really interested in hashtags like Billion Dollar Loser. I'm genuinely, I'm generally not interested in hashtags at all. But I do think...
2: Send love at your best, hashtag, best ugh, hashtags.
3: It does, to me, matter insofar as it's part of a larger case against the way Donald Trump conducted himself as president in that uh, for all his talk about being so wealthy. He didn't, nothing, you know, he couldn't be bought. Uh, he has spent most of the time in office, uh, seeking out personal gain in part because, uh, he's clearly been in so much debt and had so many entangling foreign financial interests that he is beholden to all kinds of, uh, uh, um, private companies and foreign governments in ways we don't fully understand. And, you know, something that John said all the time, which is true in this case, is that he is not looking out for the American people. He is not looking out for anyone but
2: himself and his own bottom line. Dan, let's say that uh, Love It is right that people care less about how he got rich or didn't get rich um, and care more about his conduct as president. How is it possible to still use these stories about, you know, um, taking advantage of tax loopholes, at at best, at worst, possibly committing tax fraud, um, is it possible to use these stories in a message about Trump as we move towards 2020?
1: Yes. Donald Trump was an incredibly rich person who paid zero in taxes for a decade. Donald Trump then won the presidency and passed a law to make it so that more rich people and more corporations pay zero in taxes. The people who cleaned the rooms at Trump's at the Trump Hotel paid more in taxes than Donald Trump, a multimillionaire, did you pay more for your Amazon Prime subscription than Amazon, a 900 billion dollar company, pays in federal taxes. Donald Trump thinks that system is right. We think it's wrong. Elect Democrats and we'll change it.
3: Put that in a fucking ad. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so right. It just seems like it needs to be part of like an argument against the Republican policies that yeah. make someone like Donald Trump rich.
2: Yeah, I think you've got to tie him to very unpopular Republican policies, which by the way, I mean we've talked about this a lot, is different than saying Maybe it's not in conflict, but it's different than saying Trump is some unique emergency. He's so much different than the Republicans. He's worse than the Republicans. Let's remember that the most unpopular policies uh, don't necessarily just come from Donald Trump, but they came from Paul Ryan and a lot of the Republicans in Washington, which are tax cuts for the rich um, and then paid for by gutting Medicare, gutting Medicaid and trying to take away your health care. I mean, that that's a core message that you could have used in 2012, 2016. <laughs> Uh, it's been true for a long time. It worked. And it, are we, do we still have Dan? Dan, do we have? Yeah, I'm here. I'm right here. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, and look, it worked in 2012, especially when Barack Obama talked about Mitt Romney as one of these rich guys who wanted to pass a bunch of tax cuts for rich people because he himself was rich and took advantage of all kinds of tax loopholes.
1: I love that you had to ask if I was still in the line because you said Paul Ryan's name and I didn't immediately start screaming. So you thought it must have been <laughs> difficulty. <laughs> but, you
2: know, this is it's a difficulty. It was weird. It was like, <laughs> testing, one, two, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan is back. <laughs> <laughs>
3: The uh, it's funny, too, because it's like at least, you know, look, Bain Capital was mercenary and vicious and sociopathic and undermining, you know, the ability of working people to kind of have a living wage. uh, But at least they made a profit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about trying to get the rest of Trump's tax returns. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnookin continued his effort this week to block Congress from obtaining access to the tax returns. He said on Monday that a request from House Ways and Means lacks a legitimate legislative purpose. Um, Richard Neal, who's the chairman of Ways and Means, said he would uh, let us know on Thursday what steps he's going to take next, uh, some of which could involve going to court. Um, What's going on here? Like, what other options do Democrats have to get these tax returns? Is this just the same position we were just talking about with oversight writ large, which is, you know, the Trump administration's betting it gets tied up in courts and then they just never have to comply?
1: I mean, I hate doing the thing where we hammer Democrats and we it's sort of like disillusioning. But what <laughs> this is like, I am legitimately mystified and frustrated by what Richard Neal is doing here. Did, like, what did he think was going to happen here? And why was there not a decision made about the next step before he got the letter from Manukin? Right? That like, is there, the most zero the the fucking thing. That, that was it was was a do this, so be ready. It's like
3: it's so crazy, Dan. It is so like every like the Trump administration not complying with the order for Donald Trump's tax returns. The most predictable Who would have thing, thunk it? the most predictable thing since October of 2016, like and and seems seems taken aback without a clear, immediate next step. It 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 almost like it, the next step should be in the request letter.
2: Like what what is going on? Everything's very careful and cautious.
1: And the problem with it is, is it's undermining of Nancy Pelosi's strategy. Whatever you think about it, Nancy Pelosi's view is starting impeachment proceedings right now is a mistake. So we are going to aggressively look at all of this stuff and then come to an conclusion on impeachment. But that strategy, the, the political merits of that strategy and the substantive ones, frankly, fall apart if they are not incredibly aggressive on everything That is happening short of impeachment. And so if Richard Neal is dawdling around thinking about what he could possibly do, and in his quote, he's like, well, we could subpoena him, but they don't seem to be uh, really complying with subpoenas these days. So I don't know. It's like it feeds into the caricature that a lot of people, a lot of Democratic Democrats have about how the Democrats are going about this. Right. It's just it's it's just a terrible legislative political mistake.
2: Dan, what do you think about uh, states like California that are requiring candidates to release their taxes in order to be on the ballot? I remember you talking about this before.
1: I thought this was a good idea for a really long time, and I've advocated for it and I've argued for it. But then I had a uh, massive amount of concern about it uh, a few days ago. And so what I would like to know from like some of our political polling data experts is – what do we believe the impact on turnout in California would be if Donald Trump is not on the ballot?
3: Oh, interesting.
1: So think about how this, you- right? So California, if you presume turnout drops at a rate proportional to party registration, that means that more Democrats uh, will stay home. And how does that affect our capacity to hold the crooked seven and you know go after someone like Devin Nunez? Right. Like, are those voters who are, you know, like the voters who did not turn out in 18, but you can potentially get in a presidential election year, are they going to turn out in a state like California if they can't vote against Trump?
0: Yeah. Or even seems like
1: so, like, like, so our Democratic nominees on the ballot, obviously, but Trump is not like, what is the impact of that? I'd like to sort of know that because this is a political discussion before proceeding forward.
2: Yeah, good for you for going right to the political context here. I think there
1: should be a federal law that yes. just like to run for president, you have to file financial disclosure forms. That law should be updated to include the release of tax returns, which I believe was in HR one, the first bill the Democrats in the House passed. But absent that, if we set up this piecemeal system, we could live in a world where we're disadvantaging ourselves because the only states who would pass such a law are ones that are dem- are controlled by Democrats therefore probably safe states in the presidential election and but we need higher democratic turnout among less likely voters to win things up and down the ballot in the more republican parts of these blue states.
3: Interesting. It's also worth I think worrying about what happens when republicans in states that are in reach of democrats start using this as an opportunity to create other standards to keep democrats off the ballot.
2: Yeah, I'm sure they'll do that soon.
1: I mean, there were efforts to make democrat to make presidential candidates uh, released their birth certificate uh i
2: think in Airbnb, yeah. oh, Arizona
1: right. or something like that they didn't get all the way to the end but this Forgot was a big thing in the early parts of uh obama obama years
2: uh all right let's talk about 2020 question of the day is how much do the democratic candidates need to make their campaigns about trump in order to stand out in a crowded field and unify the party so there was a long New York Times story by Astrid Herndon and Jonathan Martin this week about uh, how Kamala Harris and her advisors are trying to reset and recalibrate her campaign by having her spend more time taking on Trump. In Detroit over the weekend, she added a new section to her stump that ended with the line, quote, this president isn't trying to make America great. He's trying to make America hate. Okay. So the reason that she wants to do this is that there's a disagreement within her campaign over whether Kamala should run to the left or to the center. Quote, other Harris advisors and allies have winced at some of the senators overtures to liberals. They believe her pool of attainable voters sits squarely between the center and left and that she need not always offer the answer liberal activists may want from her. Dan, what do you make of this piece?
1: It made my head explode. Uh, you know, we <laughs> scream all the time about how reporters and pundits presume political calculation behind every utterance a candidate makes. And that is unfair because political candidates, like humans, have sincere beliefs, and they will say things they believe in, regardless of the politics of it. But when a candidate's advisors Call up the New York Times or anyone else and then explain in gory detail the political calculation between that that candidate's next utterance. You're doing that candidate a massive disservice. You know, Kamala Harris has really smart, uh, loyal staff on her campaign, uh, but some people in and around her campaign, I think, did her. A tremendous disservice by reading the new york times into their playbook you know we always yell about democrats in the house needing an inner monologue instead of calling up politico but it's, this is also true of campaign advisors like i think if this had happened on the obama 08 campaign i think pluff would have burned the building down
2: i mean i'll tell you we're not on campaigns right now but we still get emails from political reporters asking us to talk about you know some like inter-party fighting and what's going on. What do you think of Biden? Cause you were in the white house. Also. And, I'm like, no. No, you I'm do a- it all anonymously. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's like, I, I mean, ne- you don't respond. I never participate in those stories, even though I'm not in a campaign, because I'm like, it's just, there's nothing that comes from my participation in that story that's going to be helpful to the candidate. So never mind if you're on the campaign or advising the campaign doing that. Like, do, n- Jonathan Martin calls you up. No, I love Jonathan Martin. who's a great reporter, but I'm not talking to him about that if I'm on a campaign. (laughs)
3: I have a simple rule. I only talk to reporters if they're writing a glowing profile about me personally. (laughs) I also want to say one other thing because I'm sorry. Uh, Make America great again. Make America hate again. I have expected Kamala to remove her face like Arya Stark and reveal Hillary Clinton. And and like I, I... I worked for Hillary Clinton for years. I believe Hillary Clinton should be fucking president right now. I agree with every criticism of those who constantly blame Hillary Clinton alone for the reason she's not president. But that sentence to me gets at some of the mistakes we made in 2016 that we should not be making in 2020.
2: I mean, it's also a line that is a very, I mean, it's a piece about uh, consultants and advisors talking to the New York Times, and that's what that line sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I I talked to Kamala Harris for almost an hour here, and, and she never said stuff like that. She right. never rhymes. War- There's no rhyme. She's warm, brilliant, engaging. She's like she is a very authentic person. I know we, authenticity gets thrown around out, but like Kamala Harris is. So the piece says her advisors have quote extensively polled and run focus groups on the Democratic primary electorate, and quote do not believe she should bow to liberal activists. Setting aside the wisdom of people telling reporters this, um, are they right, Dan?
1: No, I mean, I like I am speechless at the absurdity that someone told that. Like, it just it makes me so mad. I can barely stand it, and it makes me actually really. I just I'll get to your answer, but I just want to vent for one sec. It makes me mad on Kamala Harris's behalf. She just yeah. had her best moment on the campaign since the announcement, right? She just demonstrated to the whole world in the bill bar hearing about like what, like what she is so good at and how talented and smart she is. And the response to that is to lay out your political strategy. And the times is crazy. It's, I think the, it's the wrong way of thinking about it which is you're putting yourselves in this Twitter blue check Mark pundit box. That is just not right. how voters think about it. Right. They are making a holistic judgment on a candidate on who they are, what they stand for, what their policy beliefs are, and what kind of, and what kind of opponent they would make to Trump and to try to choose between like we have to be liberal or moderate is the like you don't campaign in a silo, right? You are a human being. And voters will support people that they agree with on some things and disagree with on other things because they're making an overall judgment. So if they if members of her campaign are thinking about this in terms of one path or the other path, I think it's just a very faulty way of thinking about presidential politics. It may Sometimes that is a way you think about a Democratic primary for Senate or governor, which is there's a liberal candidate or there's a moderate candidate you count up the liberal voters, you count up the moderate voters and figure out which one is a better shot. But for the president, a presidential campaign is something incredibly different than that. And the judgments that voters make is incredibly different than that. It's, it's much more complex. And this is a incredibly and painfully simplistic way of looking at politics.
2: I also think there's something more important than ideology and deciding that you're going to tack to the left, tack to the center, apologize for a past position, whatever. I mean, we have candidates in here all the time and we have push them on their support for the filibuster. Um, when Kamala Harris was here, I asked her about her record as a prosecutor and the truancy program she started, and she said "You know, she regretted her support for this law that caused some parents to be um, arrested. And my view, on, my view on this is if you believe in your past record, even if it's not necessarily popular right now, then say you still believe it. If you're truly regretful of it, say you're truly regretful. If you're for the filibuster, don't tell me that now you're against the filibuster just because you're here and you know that we feel that way. You know, like I will respect it a lot more if you come here and say, I know you guys hate the filibuster. I know you guys think, here's why I think we should keep the filibuster because I really believe that. Like, Just be who you are and stand by your beliefs and I think you will get a lot more credit from people than Having a bunch of advisors say, oh, well, when you go on this program, you should attack uh, to the left a little bit. When you talk to this crowd, you should tack to the center a little bit, and all that kind of stuff, because that just gets you twisted in knots all the time.
3: Right. Well, because what, what's not uh, mentioned in the article is uh, what does Kamala Harris actually believe about the kind of policies we should have when she's president? One reason this story is going to be so damaging is now If she bucks the left wing of the party, it's not because she believes it or doesn't believe it. It's because that's the strategy. If she decides to accede to demand of the left wing of the party, it's not because she believes it. It's because she has made a strategic decision. And so reducing every position to a strategic choice just makes it harder to take any position whatsoever because it's no longer about who you are and what you stand for. Uh, It's about messaging and strategy.
2: Yeah. I mean, let's get to the crux of the piece so because there's this disagreement about whether she should attack to the left or tack to the center, um, the easy out here is whacking Trump, because hitting Trump is the way that you can both unify the party, because people on the center of the party and the left of the party all hate Trump.
3: Yeah, this trebuchet is all along the, right. the, the flank there.
2: And it's the easier way to stand out in this crowded field, because candidates who take on Trump directly whether it's Joe Biden, whether it was Kamala Harris taking on Bill Barr in that hearing, whether it's you know other candidates have done this as well, um, those candidates tend to get more coverage than the primary candidates who are running around just talking about policy. What, Dan, what do you think about that?
1: I, just it's, it's once again, a very simplistic way of thinking about it. It's also, it's this incredibly false choice, like which candidate is not taking on Trump? right <laughs> like like Elizabeth Warren's policy rollouts are done entirely in the context of fixing the problems that ex- and many times existed before Trump but have been exacerbated by Trump, right? like like that like Trump is the conversation. There is no dearth of candidates talking about Trump. Like what was so impressive about Kamala Harris's performance in the Bill Barr hearing was not that she took on Trump and no one else did. It was that she showed herself to be smart and thoughtful and to take no shit from Bill Barr. And like that, the, it's just it's her general demeanor. She came off as an incredibly impressive person who you could see sitting behind the desk in the Oval Office in that moment. It was not that all of a sudden she discovered the benefits of Trump criticism. Right? In fact, right. she didn't even really talk about Trump in there. She really talked about Bill Barr and Bill Barr's conduct and how the report was done. And it highlights an important part of her background, which was that she was a prosecutor. It is, so one way of thinking about that exchange is people value her role as a prosecutor, much in the way that we believed in the 2008 campaign, that people valued Barack Obama's role as a community organizer because it spoke to the kind of president he wanted to be as a, someone who would try to bring change from the, from the bottom up. So you could take from that, we should talk more about her being a prosecutor. I don't know that you can look at what happened there and the success they had, I presume raising money and generating attention after that, and say the reason for that is, we. the answer to that is we need more Trump criticism. Trump criticism is fine. Criticism only one. He's worthy of all of it and more. But I don't know how that's going to make you stand out in this field.
2: Yeah, again, I mean, there's, in some instances, Trump represents a unique emergency. In other instances, Trump is merely a continuation of a Republican party that's become radicalized over the last decade. and probably you should just respond to each instance when it happens, <laughs> you know. Like if 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 it requires you to take on Trump directly because you're talking about a specific issue where Trump is some unique emergency, then talk about Trump. Otherwise, you don't have to. Like I think it's just it's it's situation dependent here. I don't think it's a strategy to necessarily stand out in a field. I don't think it's
3: also this is I the the third story in as many weeks about a candidate deciding to use Trump to make themselves distinct. Right. I mean, Bernie did that. I think in his announcement, he spoke more about. Trump than others, Joe Biden made made Trump and the way in which Trump is an aberration central to his announcement. So, I find it all a bit strange. And you know, to Dan, Dan, to your point, the reason that moment stood out was not because it was about Trump; it was because it was about her. Yeah, it was
2: a moment about that that she stood out. She stood out because she did something in that moment that. M- probably no other candidate in the field could do. That's my advice to candidates is always like, think about the things that make you unique and stand out in this field that are unique to you skills that you have a background that you have issues that you've cared about for a long time, because when you do that, then people are really like, oh, that's only something that Kamala Harris could say or do. That's only something Elizabeth Warren could say or do. And when you, and the, the more you're focusing on that, the more people say, okay, now I know why this particular candidate stands out in the field because none of these other candidates could do that, say that, propose that policy, etc.,
1: I'm not saying this is what is underlying Kamala Harris's campaign's uh, approach to this, but I did talk to someone who was advising another presidential candidate who was seeking attention. And a big way in which they are thinking about this is how can you get Trump to react to you, right? And, mm-hmm. if, and if Trump attacks you, that like the candidates who have had Trump engage with them have seen jumps in uh, fundraising online. Right. So if, if like Trump will tweet about you or pick a fight with you or whatever else, that that is helpful. And I can see why candidates are trying to look for a way to get him to react to you because that is attention. But it's important to note that is a tactic, not a strategy. And that is a way to generate money. It's not a way to, so, to win the primary. The second yeah. point I want to make is just generally as we think about our nominee and we run through our mind about what attributes do we want the nominee to have to make them best suited to um, – take on Trump. And that I don't mean like what they look like or who they are or where they're from, but like what are, their, what are they good at as candidates? And I am much more concerned that our nominee be able to tell their own story about why they're running for president, what they would do as president, who they would fight for, than I am in their ability to say bad things about Trump. I think we, like the what happened, at, the lesson of 2016 is not that we need to do a better job of making the case against Trump, although there's fair criticism of how, the Clinton campaign did that, it is that we need to not chase Trump down every rabbit hole. We like we can't allow him to define the four corners of the conversation. We want a nominee who can talk about themselves and talk about their vision and inspire people on their own, not just try to scare them about Trump. And so I just think that the we can wrap ourselves around the Trump axle in a pretty dangerous way pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I think it's very important for candidates to look at that first debate. And realize that it is not a contest of sick burns. It is not, you know, it's not like uh, so-and-so had the best uh, Trump hit. RT, if you agree, you know, like that's not, uh, the the people should walk away from those debates and where they're going to look at fucking 10 people on stage two nights in a row and think, okay, which candidate really stood out? Not because they had the best line on Trump, but because I said, oh, that person is bringing something to the table that none of these other candidates bring.
3: Yeah, it's also I think there's a point that uh, Mayor Pete has made a few times, which I actually think is really smart in that when either you look for a way to insult Trump effectively or when you seek to get Trump's attacks. Yes, you are picking a fight with Donald Trump, but in some sense, not only are you playing on his turf, you're in some sense seeking his approval, seeking his recognition that you're on his level. And it really does once again define everything Around Trump and by Trump. So I do think, you know, Dan, to your point, it's a tactic, not a strategy. Not only is it not a strategy, I think in the long term, every time we engage in a debate that is about seeking Trump's criticism, you are giving him power in our in our part of the process.
2: Yeah. And and like and like you said, Dan, like I get why people do it, because in the short term, you get a burst of online fundraising and you get a lot of people cheering you on twitter and and you obliterate every other candidate it's just you and trump right and so that's very tempting and i think there's like there's definitely a time and a place to do that once in a while but you're right it's not a uh, it's not an overall strategy okay uh when we come back we'll have dan's interview with Stacey abrams it's that time of the year
4: You can live out your master chef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel, connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
2: Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of
1: the polls?
2: To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at crookedcom slash friends.
1: Our guest today is Stacey Abrams. She's the former Georgia House Minority Leader, founder of Fair Fight Action, and author of the amazing book, Lead from the Outside. Stacey, welcome back to Pod Save America.
4: Thank you for having
1: me. So this is the first time we've had a chance to talk since you announced your decision not to run for Senate. I understand and deeply respect a decision to not run for an office that feels that you don't feel is right for you. But I'm curious about what brought you to that decision, because in your uh, announcement, you said there, that democracy is under attack. And I'm curious what it is about the the attack on democracy that you think that makes you think the Senate is not the right place to lead the fight against that.
4: So I, I see those as two separate but dis- but interrelated issues. The role of the Senate is to propose legislation. It's also an extraordinary platform to have debate and conversation. And I think that that job needs to be taken by a Democrat from Georgia, and I'm going to do everything in my power to make that so. But my experience, not only in the recent elections, but for the last 20 years, has also signaled the importance of having folks on the ground doing the work every day, and particularly tackling the bureaucratic entrenchment of voter suppression at the state level. And when I weighed my responsibility and my goals, while I deeply respect Chuck Schumer and believe absolutely I could have won that election and a Democrat can win it, when I thought about the next six years, the next 12 years, next 18 years, three, two or three terms, or even a single term I do not believe that the work that I do and the way I approach the work that I do would be a match with the Senate. Uh, I think I could have supported that kind of work on the ground, but I do not think I could have led it. And for me, that's the most important issue, uh, being on the ground doing this work. And to be fair, I see myself and have seen myself uh, for the last 20 years, I'm much more suited to a more executive role than a legislative role, because even in the state legislature in Georgia, I was a legislator for four years. I was the leader for seven years. And part of that was that for me, it's about building systems and making sure that the execution of the ideas are as tightly done as possible. And that's what I'm good at.
1: So you're going to be leading this effort through your organization, Fair Fight Action. What will Fair Fight Action be doing um, to fix our democracy and fight against voter suppression?
4: So Fair Fight Action has three roles right now. One is litigation. We have filed a comprehensive federal lawsuit that goes beyond any lawsuit that's been filed before. Instead of attacking individual examples of voter suppression, and there have been incredible lawyers and groups that have been doing that work, we are... A essentially articulating a Brown versus the Board of Education theory of the case, which is that as a matter of fact, this connection of registration access denial, ballot access denial, and ballot counting denial, when those things are yoked together, there is a system of disenfranchisement that violates the Constitution of the United States of America, and we do not have free and fair elections in Georgia. Uh, This litigation had its first test last Tuesday in front of a federal judge we are waiting to hear if he will grant the state's motion to dismiss which is predicated on the argument that they weren't really responsible for the election uh which we disagree with uh <laughs> number 2 it's legislation we are fighting for fair systems for actual voting systems uh George is about to make the single largest purchase we believe in we know in american history we believe ever Uh, Of machines that have been called the worst machines in the world. Uh, They are hackable, they are vulnerable, and they do not provide an audit trail. And we will spend $150 million for a license to allow the state to continue to pay for these flawed machines. And it just so happens if the wrong company is selected, the two colleagues of the current governor, his deputy chief of staff, and his uh, general counsel will be benefiting their former employers. Uh, The third part is advocacy. We know that it's not just enough to talk about the right to vote, to talk about democracy in the abstract, but to really connect it to the lives that we lead. That's why we've been fighting against not only this purchase of machines through legislation, but we've been talking to people about the fact that we still don't have Medicaid expansion in Georgia. That's a direct result of stolen elections. We, as a state, just saw the governor sign the most draconian anti-abortion legislation in America. That's because of this election outcome. If people's voices aren't heard, then their will and their visions can't be realized. And so we're using Fair Action to push that conversation and to talk about advocacy so that people understand it's not just about the right to vote. It's voting for your lives.
1: I think that's a really important point because Democrats often fight back against voter suppression in the courts And then when we have political power, uh, trying to do it legislatively, but not often enough do we make the public argument of the consequences against it. Do you feel like the party is starting to learn a lesson here? Do you want to hear more from Democrats making a public case so that there are political consequences for Republicans who push these laws?
4: Absolutely. I I think that the party has done a better job. We've been able to work very closely with uh, Chairman Cummings. Who has launched an investigation into the Georgia elections? We've had conversations and we're part of the hearings that are being conducted by Chairwoman Marsha Fudge. Uh, we are working with uh, Representative Terry Sewell on the restoration of the Voting Rights Act. And every presidential candidate I've spoken with so far has agreed to talk about voter suppression. But I think your point is out, is the most accurate one, which is that we have to connect the dots. The people who are the most likely to be victimized by voter suppression are the very ones who have been convinced that voting is irrelevant because they've never seen their lives truly advance. If we don't remind them not only of the power that they hold, but show them that there should be consequences for stealing that power, then we are no, we are no solution to their problem. And so my approach to the work that I do, regardless of what it is, is to always make sure we come back to the core belief system, which is that we have a democracy so that the people can be served. We have government so that as a community, we benefit as many people as possible and we remove barriers for opportunity to success. Those are not conversations you can have when people can operate with impunity in the theft of your votes, but also when people come to power and they don't use that power to advance your interest.
1: If you win your lawsuit, what are the national implications of that? Does it extend beyond the state of Georgia in terms of setting precedents?
4: So it's going to be—it's it, certainly going to have an effect uh, through the findings of fact uh, for other states that have similar situated laws, because it's a—you know—it's a state-based case that's using specific language that's in our state legislation. Uh, there, you know, there are limits to what the implications can be, but as we know, when legislation is overturned when the courts make determinations. Other courts do look to what those decisions were. It won't necessarily compel better action, but it sets a precedent, and we believe it sets the framework for other states to pursue a similar strategy. Everything I do, whether it's Fair Fight Action and our fight for voter integrity, or Fair Count, which is an organization I launched a few months ago that is looking at the census, or New Georgia Project, which I started in 2014, Every organization I start, we design it to be exportable and replicable. So even if the litigation itself cannot solve the problem in Ohio or in Indiana or in Texas or Tennessee, what we want to have happen is that others will know what to do, how to do it, and we will have given them a roadmap and the resources and support to get it done.
1: A few months ago, you wrote an incredibly powerful essay about identity politics and pushback on a lot of the bullshit that surrounds that conversation the conversation about identity politics in the Democratic Party. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners who didn't get a chance to read that what your argument was and get your reaction to the endless and endlessly stupid debate among pundits about whether Democrats should go after the, quote-unquote, base or the white working class.
4: Okay, so a uh, very quick top-line uh, ex- explanation. The most reductive idea of identity politics is either that you – Pick someone based on their identity, or you only select them because they see your identity. Okay. No one should elect anyone simply because they have a shared identity. But what they should expect and why identity politics is so powerful and thus is the, the target of so many attacks is identity politics essentially says, I see you. I see the obstacles to your success, I see the barriers to your opportunity, and as someone you are hiring to solve the problem, you can trust that I know how to solve the problem because I see the the problem. The more complicated way of talking about it is to say that we know throughout our history identity politics has always been the impetus for change that when communities that were denied access align themselves and organize themselves based on their shared challenge, that they were able to produce results. That if people can't see you, if leadership can't see you, it will not solve for you. The corollary then is that we have to recognize that everyone has an identity, that white working class is an identity. African-American middle class is an identity. Latino is an identity, but so is growing up in a rural community. So is being in the blue-collar segment of a town. What we want from leadership is an inclusive understanding that all of us want the same things. We want access to health care. We want economic security. We want a good educational opportunity. We want a fair justice system. We want free and fair elections. And that if you don't understand what the challenge to my accomplishing those ends are, then you are not good for this job, and that if you cannot see my identity, you cannot see me, you cannot serve me.
1: I mean, that is such an important understanding of how politics operates. Um, do you think people are starting to better understand what that means, or are we still operating in an outdated sense?
4: I, I think we are seeing more leaders push back on the narrative, but unfortunately, some of the folks running for the presidency are still caught up in this very reductive and internally inconsistent idea because to, your, to the underlying point of your other question, when you try to give primacy to one group over the other, you are prim- giving primacy to one identity over the other, which is to say you don't reject identity politics. You just don't give privilege to the identities who need you in this way. And so, uh, you know, my campaign, we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. But that didn't mean I didn't campaign everywhere and talk to everyone. I simply acknowledge that most of the politics of our communities are geared towards the normative voter and that if we don't then acknowledge those who are outside the system, we will never bring them inside. These are not mutually exclusive ideas. In fact, they are deeply Connected And when tied together and leveraged together, they are extraordinarily effective, unless, of course, you're running in a state with deep voter suppression, in which case the outcome may not be what you expect.
1: Fair enough. Um, (laughs) Do you you believe Georgia uh, will be a swing state in 2020?
4: It is. It it already is. I point people to the fact that despite the outcome of the election – I ran against a cartoon villain who controlled every mechanism of power, and he still, he still only barely eked out a victory of 54,000 votes. In a midterm election where the gubernatorial race was the top of the ticket, which means you didn't have the natural national resources that come with the Senate campaign or worse or better, a presidential campaign, we were able to increase Latino, Asian, Pacific Islander turnout by We tripled their turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%, increased black turnout by 40%. We transformed the electorate, and we increased white participation in the Democratic Party for the first time in a generation. Those are all signals that if a well-funded presidential campaign comes to call, you can replicate that outcome. You simply have to do what we did, which is talk to everyone, see everyone, and invest in, in those communities. If you do that, that's 16 electoral votes. I don't know of a candidate who should imagine that it's worth squandering access to 16 electoral votes simply because you have to come south of the Mason-Dixon line. And we're we're on our way to Florida, so you might as well stop by and invest.
1: I would just note that, as someone who watched your campaign very closely and has uh, family in Georgia who very proudly voted for you, that I think your campaign is a model, just not for just, not just for Democrats making turning Georgia blue, but for winning the whole thing an inclusive progressive uh unifying campaign so that's just that's a personal note on my end to someone who really well, thank you. uh was impressed by you and the campaign you ran which which leads me to ask this question that I'm required to ask otherwise they will take my microphone away but it has been <laughs> reported that uh you while not running for senate are still potentially considering joining the ever-growing Democratic presidential field. Is that true? Yes. Oh, interesting. Would you be uh, willing to share uh, how your th- what factors are going into that decision? What would lead you to make a decision one way or the other?
4: Certainly. As I said, for me, the most important and urgent conversation of the day is the fight for free and fair elections, because I believe that that is an existential crisis facing our democracy. If people doubt it, they should look at what has happened in the last six weeks in Tennessee, in Texas, in Arizona, in Florida. These are all direct assaults on the right to vote, and these are direct assaults on our elections in places where people who are considered the outliers have asserted their power and their their voices, and we see Republicans doing everything they can to strip them of their votes. More importantly, or not more importantly, but you know, as, a, as a proof point, the Wall Street Journal published what had to be one of the weakest and most spurious arguments against voter suppression that I've seen outside of you know, some you know, screed written on Facebook. All of this is to say we cannot win elections in America for the people if we do not have candidates who are fighting against voter suppression. But we also have to have candidates who are fighting for all of us, who who realize that this is not an election against Donald Trump. It is for America. If we allow ourselves to be pulled into a battle royale against a craven opportunist who has no respect for people, then we diminish who we are and we take our eye off the ball. We also have to have candidates who believe that every community is a persuasion target, not just a turnout target, and that we have to have a strategy That looks at every state and understands how can we maximize our turnout, not to win the popular vote, but to win the Electoral College vote. I'm looking at all that, and I want to make certain that the candidates who are moving forward are paying attention to that and have plans for that. If I think they don't, I'll probably jump in myself.
1: Well, that that is interesting. Um, Well, whenever you have an announcement uh, that you want to make, you're always welcome here on Pod Save America. Before I let you go, though, I did want to ask, while you're making this decision, um, how can our listeners who who are supportive of what you're doing in Georgia with Fair Fight Action, how can they help you?
4: We'd love for them to go to fairfightaction.com and sign up. We will not only keep you apprised of what we're doing with Fair Fight Action, but we will also tell you about what's happening across the country. We're working with other groups, and we want to just continue to amplify this question and this conversation. And then as a quick aside, I want to plug faircount.org. We are also doing work on the 2020 census. As you know, if people aren't counted, they do not count, and there's a concerted effort to erase communities of color and poor communities from the narrative of America. This cannot be allowed to happen, and that means we have to redouble our efforts to ensure that there's a fair census in 2020. That means the work starts now, and we are hard at work doing that here in Georgia and working across the country. So go to FairFightAction.com and FairCount.org, sign up, and let us know how you want to help because we will call on you when we need you.
1: Stacey Abrams, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to have you back soon.
4: Look forward to it. Thank you so much.
2: Thanks to Stacey Abrams for joining us, and uh, have a great weekend. We'll uh, we'll talk to you on Monday. Bye, everyone. Don't complain to me
3: about the fact that I got all over your Thursday pod. I don't care. (laughs) Wow. I'm feeling a little sensitive. Always. (laughs) Bye, everyone. Bye, Dan. Bye.